0: I was trying so hard to be clean-cut and look like someone who has their life together that I actually became somebody who is clean-cut and has their life together.
1: (laughs) This is Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Caring Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving. Hi everyone, and welcome to Caregiver Storyteller, a storytelling podcast about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. I'm Chris Duset, and I'll be interviewing caregivers to get their stories about Alzheimer's and dementia caregiving. Occasionally, I'll also interview the authors, advocates, researchers, healthcare professionals, and people with Alzheimer's and dementia to hear their stories too. So are you ready? Here we go.
0: My name is Sue Funk. I live in Astoria, New York, and my mother had Alzheimer's. She passed away from it.
1: I'm sorry to hear that. How did uh, how did the diagnosis come to be? What was the process there?
0: Um, it took a while to stick. Uh, in 07, her doctor, that was also my doctor, we shared a primary care physician in Long Island, mm-hmm. um, told her she, she had a lot of vertigo issues. Mm-hmm. And she was starting to forget things and she thought it was part of the vertigo she was like i just feel disoriented all the time and so her doctor did a test on her um did some scans and she said she felt that she had early onset alzheimer's and my mother got so mad she walked out and she um didn't go to a doctor for a year or so i think and then she finally got some second opinions and a lot of opinions and a lot of scans, and it kept coming up the same thing. Uh, there was just a long period of disbelief and uh, not wanting to accept the diagnosis. Yeah, I really, like, I, I knew as soon as the doctor said that, because I had kind of felt that there were little bit of signs. You know, I think it's become kind of a common trend of, like, people over... I would say probably like 55 are always like, oh, this is a senior moment. It's a Mm -hmm. senior moment. Mm -hmm. Um, There were more and more of them. And there was more things where I just noticed her stopping in her speech a lot Mm -hmm. um, and giving up certain things like reading or crossword puzzles. It started just being Sudoku. Mm -hmm. We went to a lot of different doctors and she and my stepfather were born again Christian. Mm -hmm and they really just wanted to prey on it instead of getting a lot of active treatment. Mm -hmm. And that set her back and really increased the, um, it kind of, basically she, after diagnosis, she only lived 10 more years and she declined very rapidly.
1: Were you living with her at the time of diagnosis or right prior?
0: No, I had moved out about three years four years before that. Yeah, I went to college. I've always lived on Long Island. I mean, the story is technically on Long Island. Mm -hmm. No one wants to admit Brooklyn and Queens are (laughs) part of Long Island. But um, I'm originally from Nassau County, from Garden City. And so I lived at college, though. I went to college at Hofstra University, 10 minutes away from home. Mm -hmm.
1: So (laughs) Um, you were close enough to still have a kind of regular contact with your mom and you could still see this happening on a real-time basis.
0: Oh, yeah, and and that was also difficult because I'm the youngest of four, and my siblings are all on the East Coast but far away, mm. and they didn't see her or speak to her, I think, as much as I had been, and so they didn't take it as seriously for a while either. I feel like I was really the one constantly sounding the alarm and being like, we have to do something. We have to get you know a healthcare proxy it was something that I really, really wanted early on as soon as like there was acceptance I went to a doctor's appointment with my brother and uh, my stepfather and my mom we all went in the same room just to like all be on the same page and they did there's a common test in Alzheimer's where like a doctor will name four things and then they like say a few sentences and then they go back to the patient and they'll be like name those four things and like my mom looked at that doctor like you never named anything to me you're crazy
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I think that finally made my brother realize and my sister was kind of on board I think everyone like, and my other brother just kind of didn't want to deal with it which is understandable too you know I think it's a hard thing to face but it um, it was just really interesting and difficult at times because I was there for years just being like guys, this is getting worse. Like, she's not getting the help she needs. She's mm-hmm. not doing what she needs. Like, I kept reading all the research and being like, you know, she's supposed to be seeing friends. She's supposed to be going out. And she kept isolating herself. And my stepfather, as well, was kind of complicit in that. They they really like to just be together, which, you know, ideally, you can grow old with your life partner, and that shouldn't be a problem. But right. with Alzheimer's, you really need to socialize. And she just... It it was like all of her friends were cut off, Mm. and um, she just didn't have a lot of interaction or exercise during the day either, and when it came down to healthcare proxy, she wanted my stepfather to remain, and that was difficult because he hates doctors and does not believe in them, and did not believe... That they were properly doing everything, because he kept being like doctors. She sees doctors all the time, and they're not helping her. And it's like, yeah, well, you took her to the doctor for an ear infection, but that's not the same as helping her Alzheimer's. Right. And they hated going to any doctor that was constructive on her Alzheimer's. Like, I was uh, through a friend able to talk, uh, get this woman, Doctor Wolf. Who's one of the experts in New York State on dementia and Alzheimer's, and she was amazing. And she has this amazing, um, like, really great outreach helpers and basically just like a social worker. She was just somebody who was in the office to help you okay. and like talk about stuff. Sure. And like she really helped us when things started declining a lot. We mm. would talk to her, and it was just a great office. But my mom and stepfather didn't like her because she told them what was actually happening and they just never wanted to admit it like it just
1: so denial ran was it denial that ran strong yeah in, in, in and yeah. your mom and her husband yeah
0: and throughout my whole family I think I think I was the only one like I remember um, when we talked about her finally getting the diagnosis the first time
1: mm-hmm. in
0: 2007 and I wasn't somebody who ever drank alone really at that point like uh-huh. <laughs> I, I I, was pretty young in New York I was in my 20s I you know was always going out with friends and stuff and I remember I lived next to a tapas place and I went to the tapas place and I got like a double I think it was probably whiskey and at that point I hadn't drink drank that much whiskey and I drank so much by myself and then I came home and I threw up everywhere oh my goodness and I always think of like you know nausea is the point of acceptance and understanding and that they mm-hmm. they often say that that's the kind of you know philosophical moment where you're really you know I, I realized what my life was going to be what my mom's life was going to be and right. um, yeah it was a really crazy night I just remember feeling so ashamed that I drank that much because I usually didn't right. and don't right. um, and also just so I needed to be numb at that moment because it was just so real that I was like my mom as I knew her was never gonna be the same right and I I lost my father pretty young I lost my father at 16 Mm -hmm. so like she and I were kind of together a lot so losing her in my early 20s I couldn't go to her anymore for a lot of stuff because she didn't have the capacity it hit me very quickly as soon as i heard i was kind of like oh i, I i'm losing her
1: right and especially hard because you're the youngest of four right mm-hmm. so you were, it's not like you were 25 years old which is still very young mm-hmm. but you know you're in your late teens so yeah right when my father passed yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so that that's yeah. tough that's tough at what point at what point did they do you think they did acknowledge the reality of her Alzheimer's, either her or yours? It was that stepfather. appointment
0: that we all went to.
1: That was the one.
0: That was the one where she she made my brother. We had that she was going to give us healthcare proxy mm-hmm. and my stepfather talked her out of it. Mm-hmm. Because he kind of like my brother got control of her money, which was we all agreed was the best. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he had a financial planner. I had a checking account in TD Bank because I think it's a, I love the color green, you know? Like, I'm not somebody who really knows anything about finance, so he was like, I'll take care of this stuff, and he's always been amazingly above board. I know that's always something that can get very murky, but Mm -hmm. like, you know, we always used her money to get her the best care possible. And even when she passed, like, my brother was just like, there's money for... I I set up all the funeral arrangements, and he was just like, do whatever you think is necessary. Mm -hmm. So that was never an issue. But when we sat down after that doctor's appointment, that was when my mom was like, all right, this is what I want, and this is what I don't want. And she was really emphatic about wanting a home health care aid. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I think she... My stepfather is 11 years older than her, Mm -hmm. and I think she thought that he was going to pass first. Mm -hmm. So she thought she would be alone, and she didn't want to go into a home. She kept saying that, and that she wanted us to buy a house and get a health aid for her. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, is that that's not the best care for someone with Alzheimer's. They really need to be around people, and more than one person, really, like, they have to have more stimulation than that. Right. And so we, we absolutely looked into that when the time finally came. But it by the time it came, it was too late, like, because um, my stepfather wouldn't allow care into the house. He was her primary care. Mm-hmm. And I became more of an advocate. I actually went to court and tried to become my mother's um, health care proxy because We saw that he was unfit, and that came about uh, after Hurricane Sandy hit. And her house was in the flood zone in Long Island, and we tried to get them to escape, and we tried to get them to evacuate. Well, not escape, but evacuate. And um, my stepfather just didn't want to leave. He didn't think it was going to be that bad, because we had had Irene the year before, and a lot of people thought Sandy wasn't going to be that big, because Irene was just a lot of wind. It didn't really impact us the way that sandy did and so they lost power they didn't have heat and they he wasn't getting food into the house and so my brother drove from pennsylvania to take them to his home to live with them for a week and that's when he really saw that like she wasn't being properly bathed and her clothing was dirty and you know it was just it was painfully obvious that It's too much, you know, like you said, like it's really you need somebody who's really trained to be a caregiver and understands what's going on. Mm Because I think my stepfather, as someone who doesn't trust medical professionals or the industry at all, or or even the study of it, of medicine, he never wanted to learn what was really happening. And I think it's so important to be with somebody with Alzheimer's and understand how to deal with them. Mm -hmm. Like, I could tell my mother was very relaxed when I was with her because they say a lot, you have to yes end people with Alzheimer's. And my sister and I were like, finally, all those improv classes paid <laughs> off. Because <laughs> even though she's 12 years older than me, my sister and I both had, uh, you know, quote unquote comedy careers in our lives. And um, so we actually really enjoyed trying to converse with her because... Whatever she was saying or whatever she was believing, we were like, "Yeah, okay." So, or even when she got upset, like about something that didn't happen, she would. A lot of it was people were um, against her, mm-hmm. and I'm like, "Yeah, what? What should we do if they're against us? What do you want us to do? Like, and what would make you feel safe and all that?" Whereas my stepfather would always try and bring logic into it.
1: Right, big mistake.
0: Yeah. And, and so he kept trying to ground her in reality, and it would make her mm-hmm. even more frustrated. And it wasn't even until close to the end of her life that he finally was telling us all these stories about how she would act out, and she was so angry. And she would – he's like, you don't even know how, how mean your mother would get. And I'm like, well – and he, he would give me s- examples of stories, and I'm like, you're arguing with someone who doesn't understand the reality that you're in. Mm-hmm. So – it it is horrible for you, and I, I, I agree that this is a tragic story for you. But also, it's tragic for my mother because she was communicating the way that she knew how in that moment, right. and there was nobody there to give her the proper discussion back. I mean, mm-hmm. at some at one point, he even cut off communication with us because I'm like all over the place with this story. <laughs> Sorry.
1: No, this is it. This is, this is what it's like, right? So this <laughs> Yeah. Is-
0: it's just like, it jumps around. But so after the Sandy thing, we actually called there's adult, there's child services for adults, basically mm-hmm. adult services that you can call if you think that an adult is being abused, mm-hmm. who, especially if they have diminished capacity. Mm-hmm. So we went in and they, they went there and they didn't see what we saw. Um, and because we sent somebody in, they just, my stepfather decided to cut off communication with us. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one of the most horrific days of my life was standing outside her house, just trying to get in to see her and talk to her and just knowing that she was inside and not being able to get to her and like, just not my mother was never, my mother was somebody who would mother the world if she could. Mm-hmm. She was so loving. And my mother, no matter how mad she was at me, would never refuse to see me mm-hmm. ever. Like, and so that was one of the most painful days just seeing, having her shut off completely to me and not mm-hmm. being able to get to her, knowing that she needed help. Right. So that's when we decided to go for legal um, help and, it was tragic but true. The lawyer sat down with us and was like, Listen, you have a case, but this is what's going to happen. There, it's going to get to, you know, we're going to go back and forth. And this man's very stubborn, and he is never going to let go of his hold on this, on, on her and her mm-hmm. health and mm-hmm. his control of it. And it's going to get to a point where your mother's going to be in the hospital. she's gonna get very very sick and he's gonna have no choice but relinquish her to you and that's what tragically ended up happening she got so sick because the caregiving was so not present the proper Mm -hmm. one Mm -hmm. and it just killed me i mean for a long time i was like i was fighting so hard to be the caregiver and help her Mm -hmm. and not being able to do that is just like i just felt tied up and You know uh, I think a lot of people who have lived with somebody with Alzheimer's in their lives when they pass away you're not sad you're happy that they're free Mm -hmm. you know and that was something that like she wasn't herself for so long and they the person dies slowly you know it's a light that fades a lot of people talk about that and the the relationship of Alzheimer's and you get so disconnected that they pass on before your eyes for years. Mm -hmm. And then when they do finally pass away, you know that there's a peace finally. Mm
1: -hmm. For them and for you. Yeah. right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially for her. I mean, I just, I could see her, you know, like the stories of her getting aggravated, the stories of her, I mean, her physical, like the reason that she ended up in the hospital was because she hadn't been, urinating or defecating Mm -hmm. she had been holding it in because again with a proper caregiver they'll be there to assist them in the restroom Mm -hmm. and as you know i think a lot of it has to do with age and you know personality and whatnot but like my stepfather was like well she said she was going to the bathroom so i just believed her and she wasn't and she wasn't Mm -hmm. eating the proper foods Mm -hmm. you know he was like, well, we always have our little treats. And I was like, what's the treats? And it was like, she was eating more Kit Kats than she was vegetables. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, she doesn't want vegetables. And I'm like, but she needs this food to survive. <laughs> it was it, like, and it's it's interesting because, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people say, like, in life you end up parenting your parents at some point and it was definitely frustrating cuz you know i'm somebody who i don't have children i don't have a husband mm-hmm. and i have a lot of friends who do and when i at that time in my life you know i would sit around with my friends and they would talk about all their defiant children moments and i'd be like i know it's like when i try and get my mom to eat her vegetables and uh-huh. she's not <laughs> and like yeah. everyone like kind of looked at me like oh that's so sad okay. <laughs> but that's what it was it was really trying to get people who you know they want to and, and I don't fault I mean I, I'm upset by it but I, I get why you want to have your dignity you want to have your relationships you want to mm-hmm. keep things the same way mm-hmm. but unfortunately this is a disruptive disease that you really have to change your life for and you there's no room for selfishness and there's no room for ignorance You the more educated and I mean, it's just amazing to see how some people can live for so long and still have somewhat of a life, you know? I just, it, it stinks that she didn't get to, you know, sit and make crafts and make new friends and just kind of go off, but I think he was very scared. A lot of people talk about how people with dementia in these programs end up falling for other people in these programs, and I think he was worried about that too. He was jealous, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think and I I can't speak for him and I won't but I I think it's it's just very interesting to there was animosity beto- between us but I I gave a lot of it up because it is what it is. I could I wish I could have changed things and I right. know that I tried right. to do everything I could.
1: It's really a study in letting go. Right? Absolutely. You don't have... A caregiver does not... No one on earth has control over everything. Yeah. And ultimately, you have to surrender to the world that is and the life that is. And even if that means your mother chooses for her husband to have the health care proxy, well, that was a choice, yeah. right? And you couldn't control that, nope. and you did what you could, and mm-hmm. she has to live with those consequences, even if they're not in, you know, in yeah. her best interest. And you have to live with those consequences, even yeah. if it's not in your best interest. Uh, and, and it, it must, it, I always think of it um, as um, kind of like the drug addiction, right? Mm-hmm. When you, someone you love is an addict, there's only so much you can do yep. to help them. Ultimately, they have to make decisions on their own. Yeah. And you you can't force someone to get clean or sober or anything. And you just, in some ways, you have to sit back and, and watch someone make the wrong choice and, and uh, uh, or suffer from, you know, yeah. watch someone suffer. And it's so painful. Uh, Absolutely. And, uh, and so I can imagine... Mm-hmm. Uh, what it must be like, right, for you to see your mom make uh, a healthcare yeah. proxy choice in, in your mind. I, bet I just can see you being like, no. Well,
0: <laughs> and it's like even her friends were baffled by that because they, like, and that was the thing that I think was also really difficult is there was a lot of things that she started doing that were very out of character for her Mm -hmm. and it felt like they were more in character with what my stepfather would do Mm -hmm. and so I think that was something that was also upsetting is that we we saw her lose her own voice Mm -hmm. and he took over for that voice Mm -hmm. and you know her best friend I remember sitting on the phone talking to her and her just being like why didn't she give one of the like like why didn't she give one of your kids? And I was like, well, she wanted to be loyal to her husband. And she's like, my husband's my healthcare proxy, but so is my son. Mm -hmm. You know, like, Mm -hmm. you could have more than one. You need somebody else as a backup, you know? And, I mean, it's just one of those things where if it ever comes up in conversation, I feel like I get so... Passionate and crazed. Like, I get like wild eyes. I know, (laughs) like, when somebody's just like, oh, like, healthcare proxy. I'm like, you better pick your healthcare proxy, pick smart, pick it now, pick it while you can. (laughs) Like, um, I remember one of my bosses saying that she didn't want her husband to have it, but she keeps forgetting to give it to her daughter that she wanted to. And I was like, you have to do that. Like, go do it this weekend. It's not that hard. Like, it's a paper, it's a sign, like, just get it. Yeah because you never know and like even, no matter how old you are you should have somebody there like my case for emergency isn't anybody of, of my family because nobody lives in the state it's my best right. friend because she's a doctor <laughs> so I'm just like yeah she can be the one that comes and gives everybody else the information <laughs> like yeah, yeah she'll understand what's going on
1: <laughs> so tell me about your mom what is her name and what uh what was she like
0: her name was Irene. Irene. Irene, <laughs> just like the hurricane. Um, she loved children. She really, really did. She was a um, one of her favorite jobs was being a nursery school teacher. Um, and she was great with kids. She like love. She had infinite patience, mm-hmm. and she was extremely intelligent. And she would speak. If she was here, she would be like, "I'm not that smart. I'm not that smart," but she could pick up a book and like teach herself stuff so she learned how to do a bunch of computer programming and like computer programs and she actually went around for nassau boces and taught people all around new york state this complex program to keep track of children in this program Hmm. and so and that was like she was in her 50s like and she taught herself this and traveled around and did this you know Um, it's just it always amazed me how she was just one of those people where if she read the instructions on how to do something she could do that thing
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I mean she was pretty shy like my family talks about it now like we're a pretty gregarious bunch Mm -hmm. you know like I said my sister was uh, an improv person but there's always that person in the family that's like not theatrical but is the most theatrical and my brother Mike is like such a ham and so we're always people that don't mind being the center of attention but my mother was not that she loved to watch everything and just sit back and she was very giving and you know she enjoyed a Manhattan every night which I realized when I was an adult I was like wow that was a really strong drink to have every night mom good for you <laughs> um but she you know she was just a really nice, kind, warm, giving person. And one of the best, uh, I mean, I I know I am obviously skewed, but she was an amazing mother. Like, mm. she just taught me so much and really loved me so infinitely.
1: Do you have a favorite memory?
0: Oh, man. Watching TV with her, we would cuddle up and watch TV. And just, it's not one moment. It was like a thousand. Cause right that was really the time that you, you could talk. My sister says, uh, she has teenagers, and she was saying that the best time to talk to a teenager is in the car, because you don't have to make eye contact.
1: Right, right. And I
0: feel like that was the same with television. like. I grew up, you know, in the 80s, and there was all those very special programs. Right, (laughs) So, like, if Blossom was talking about using birth control, (laughs) we would sit there and she would be like, this isn't a very appropriate topic, but, like, this is what what our thoughts are, and blah, blah, blah. And, like, so we would have these moments based on these shows, and it's funny because it's like, oh, well, it seems like such a passive action, Mm -hmm. but really it was something that we really – bonded over and we talked about and we wouldn't just sit there and stare off we would have active discussions about the shows that we watched and had really strong opinions yeah
1: the more you know it worked on <laughs> yes, you guys
0: exactly
1: that's wonderful and of course you then went on to have a career, career. in yeah. television yeah you run a po- tell me about your podcast real quick
0: so I have a podcast that's on break right now uh I have well I have two that are both on break <laughs> I have I Summertime. love tv more than you <laughs> That's is, I love TV
1: more than you. Yes, yep.
0: and uh, that's just people come on and talk about their favorite shows and shows that impacted their life. And then I am also, I work in television now, like you said. I, mm-hmm. I love it. I work for A&E Networks, and I uh, created and produce uh, PD Stories, which is where officers come on, and it's a spinoff of our show, Live PD. And instead of being live, we have t- officers come and tell crazy stories and monumental stories of their career. And And it has
1: a cult following.
0: Yeah, people really like it. I'm so (laughs) very, very happy. But, I mean, the live media audience is also one that's, like, super rabid and loves our show, and they love content around it. But, um, yeah, we've noticed a lot of people, like, it's got five-star reviews, and Mm -hmm. people really Like, when we said it was the season finale, we got more comments than ever. People being like, no, I love it. So,
1: (laughs) Do you think that part of your love for television is because it was kind of a foundational moment between you and your mom?
0: A hundred percent. You think so? I was young. I was below 10. And it was time to go to bed. And I was watching television with my mom. And I was like, no, I didn't see the credits. And she was just like... Well, what do you want to see the credits for? I was like, What if my name's in there? My mom was like, No, you have to work on the show for them to put your name. And I was like, Well, my name's going to be on there one day. And it hasn't yet, but (laughs) someday I still work in television, which is what I want to do. So, yeah, I just, I know she like looked at me and I just remember her being like, You probably will. You know, she was like, It's a lot of work. And I was like, I love working. which is true I started working at like 11
1: yeah was she a teacher all her life
0: no so she had a lot of different jobs uh she was a secretary when she met my father Mm -hmm. and then she became a full-time mom Mm -hmm. and then when I was graduating the nursery school like at five she started working there Mm. um And so I would take the bus from kindergarten. The bus garage was right next to the nursery school, so they would drop me off there. And I would go and help her and um, go to the nursery school and just see her work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she worked there for a few years and then wanted to get a job that made more money and was more, I guess, a more adult setting she was looking for. Uh, So she went back to being a legal secretary. She worked for a bunch of different attorneys and then decided that she hated attorneys <laughs> after a while and so yeah she had a bunch of different careers I bet if she was around she would say mom was probably her favorite
1: mom yeah right of course and of course her kids she must be so proud of all of her kids yeah right
0: uh, we, we shared a, ha- a hairdresser she was a very quirky woman in like Rockville Center that like she was the kind of hairdresser where you go in and it took like 20 hours to do like a half-hour hair dye change. Uh She was very chatty, Uh and she said that my mom would do nothing but brag about her kids, and just Uh. to anyone, she would find a way, a hook of talking about how proud of her kids she was, and she really was proud of the people that we became.
1: And it sounds like you, the four kids, had a a pretty good team effort, Uh, and there was not a lot of drama or strife in the management of her illness
0: no I mean my brother and I really teamed up a lot um because he was financial and I was trying to do I was kind of leading the charge on the legal front Mm -hmm. and then um my sister was (laughs) just a rabid researcher (laughs) my sister just always wants to like help as much as she can so we would be on a call, and I was like, "All right, I'll go go do this, and I'll go." And my brother's like, "All right, I'm going to do that." And my sister's like, "And then I'm going to do all the research on what what possible things could be outcomes, and I'll do the analytics." And this, and she would just like come back with all this information on us yeah. of like what yeah. we what our choices and options were yeah. and everything.
1: And what did you guys do for? I mean, obviously, your uh, stepfather and your mother both didn't like doctors, right? Mm-hmm. So they didn't uh, they didn't seek out support. No. You know, when if they didn't have to, what did the four of you do to get the support that you needed?
0: We leaned a lot on each other, I think, but I think we all kind of had our own things. You know, my sister is one of those people that has finished her bucket list and has a new bucket list, and just always writing. She's an amazing writer, and uh, Mike just really threw himself into work. Uh, he had a couple of tough years in work, so. Yeah, I think we were just funks love to work, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, so we threw ourselves into our jobs a lot. Um, probably not the healthiest of ways. Mm-hmm. I'm the only one that. Goes to regular therapy, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, I live in New York City, so it's like kind of part you of. Have to. Yeah, yeah, like here's your keys. Here's your here's the card for the therapist. Here you go. Here's Welcome your to Subway New York. Metro card yeah. and
1: the name of your therapist.
0: Yeah, yeah. the R train's the best to cry on. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but uh, no, I mean, I definitely relied on therapy. During those years, and yeah. then I took what I learned and helped my
1: students. Yeah, did it at any point? Did you guys ever consider seeking out uh, a support group for caregivers or family caregiving classes or anything like that?
0: Um, not really, because our situation was such that we felt as though no one would get it. Mm-hmm. Because, and it's interesting though, because our social worker kept saying this is so common Mm. you are not alone this is not an issue that just you guys have and they encouraged us but i think we were just so focused on helping her right that we didn't take that and then that's something if i could go back i i wish i had gone to one of those Mm -hmm. groups but i think at that time in my life anything for me felt like it was taking time away to fight for her You know, I was like, all right, I'll keep myself alive, food, water, (laughs) shelter. I'll have my job and I'll do a great job at my job. And then I will just do everything I can to make sure that she is safe. And that was like something that really weighed on me. It was like I I felt very much like a mother with a child in danger. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: I would, you know, stay up nights just being like, I know she's not safe there you know, especially after Hurricane Sandy, we we knew things were really, really bad. And I just, I worried that she was going to get hurt. I worried that she was going to burn down the house. I worried, you know, my stepfather kept leaving her alone a lot. And at her stage, she couldn't be left alone. Right. And so I I was just so worried that she would hurt herself and not know what to do. And, you know, there was a lot of discussion of more, what can we do to help her than I think more than what can we do to help us?
1: Right. Now that it's been about a year since mm-hmm. she's passed away, how is your relationship with your stepfather? Has it changed at all? Do you talk anymore? Has it improved? Has it gone worse?
0: I don't think it could go worse than legal action. <laughs> but uh, he, I don't think he ever understood, and he thinks that we were dopey and he thinks that we're headstrong and he he often thinks that we think we're smarter than him mm-hmm. and that would always frustrate me because there's different levels of intelligence I don't think I'm smarter than anybody mm-hmm. you know I probably have better logic and reasoning but he has spatial relations for days of understanding that I don't yeah. so um I was always trying to work to educate and he did not like that right you know, for a few months after her death, I really tried to keep up the connection. But because he never saw, he never took any ownership of the fact that she really got sick, sicker and quicker because of his reluctance to get a full time caregiver, because he just didn't want anybody in the house. Like, there were people that actually came in and were like, you need somebody in the house. And there were stipulations that basically we finally did get some legal stipulations of like, you have to keep the house stocked, there's going to be somebody who comes in, a neutral third party that checks on her, and there's going to be a nurse to sit with her so that way you can go out. Because they finally explained to him, well, the court had to explain to him that like, you can't do this by yourself. This isn't, no one can. It's not a you thing. And that was the thing that was so difficult. It's an everybody thing. Yeah, like, he really took it personally. Like, I was like, you're an idiot. You can't do this. When it's really, like, no, literally, like, even the most trained professionals cannot do this on their own. They need relief. They need somebody else to come in. So he just was so angry that we did that. And he... He's just not super nice to me. I mean, we were, I was at the house trying to just get some belongings that, because he was talking about trying to clean up some clutter. And I was like, oh, there's some just items of hers that I wanted to keep for sentimental reasons. Mm -hmm. And her wedding dress that she wore to marry him was there. And he said something like, oh, yeah, we'll save it for when uh, Taylor gets married, who's my niece. And I was like, okay, so we're not going to. I'm never getting married okay Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and it was just there was always little slights like that towards me about mm. um he just didn't never like the fact that I am you know what he would call a career woman instead of a wife Mm -hmm. and I gave my mom so much stress because she I didn't have anybody to take care of me which I know was partially true but also I remember my mom Seeing my friends and my friend support group in New York and just always being like, you have so many people, Mm. you know, you've always been somebody who has a lot of friends around you. Yeah, Yeah, there's just a personality clash that Mm. I was kind of, Mm -hmm. I wanted to, for my mom, take care of him and just check on him. And I tried for a couple of months and then it just started giving me anxiety. I'm going to have to hear... He was upset that he didn't get to spend more time with her at the Mm -hmm. end because when she did get so sick that she had to go into the hospital, we finally got her into a Pennsylvania care, uh, a home in Pennsylvania for care. Mm -hmm. And we decided Pennsylvania because it's actually really great care for a much more affordable price than New York State. Mm -hmm. And my brother and sister-in-law are teachers and they have a schedule where they could check in on her more
1: a lot of good reason for moving to Pennsylvania. Yeah,
0: it wasn't but he felt like we were trying to punish him Right. whereas it was really the best for her care because you know, we looked at places in New York and we talked about, you know fine, I would get a car so that way I could go and drive out to, you know, Plainview or wherever and go visit her and I was just like this is going to be too much and whereas we can afford this facility that's beautiful that knows how to meet her needs and has several caregivers around the clock. And you know, he just thought it was them that, that killed her. They, they oh, right. that's what those places are. I saw on TV, that's what they do. And it's like, no, like, she fell while she was there. And he was just like, what happened there? And I was like, she tripped over a chair. And he was like, well, I don't believe it. Why weren't they watching her? Well, because it's just like watching children. You can't... Right. You're watching 10 kids in a room. You turn your back for one second. One trips over a chair and hurts themselves. It's not your fault. Right. It's what happens.
1: Yes. It's the nature of the illness and it's the nature of the age and all that. Stuff.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. it was just, you know, it, I just didn't want to hear that I did something wrong because you already blame yourself. You know, I think it's it's just something that, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's being raised Catholic or whatever, (laughs) but like, you know, I just always felt guilt about everything, but I didn't want to feel guilt about doing something that I knew was right for her. Right. And I don't want to argue about it anymore. You know, like.
1: Do you still feel guilty?
0: I think my guilt has gotten a lot better because, um, when my mom passed like people would be like you did so much you did and I was like no (laughs) nope didn't and now that I've had gotten some time from that situation and like I think even my siblings and I have really kind of sat with it and been like wow we did it like when we got her into the Pennsylvania home my brother my sister and I all drove her and we sat at his kitchen table and just like had this like cuddle hug of like we did it and we're you know it was all that fighting and we finally got her in a safe place and that felt great but after a year do I still feel guilt not as much I think I'll always wish that I pushed harder for certain things but in my mind I know even if somebody has Alzheimer's they still have free will because they are humans Mm -hmm. and you can't take away someone's Right to choose, especially when it comes to healthcare. Right. So that was her choice, and I had to respect it. And I, I definitely still feel guilt. I think I, I haven't totally processed her passing. Mm-hmm. I feel like I am like her in a way where you know, just never stop moving, just keep going. Right. So I mean, people were like, "You went to back to work a week after," and I'm like, "Yeah, because what am I going to do? Sit around and be sad." Right. But then a month after I had to call out of work because I could not stop crying. Yeah. I literally hysterical cried for like 24 hours straight. <laughs> and it wasn't even like something sad that happened or just an onflux. It was like my body was just like, oh my God, like this is so sad, yeah. this loss. But yeah. I think it is like I was saying earlier that like lead up to it where you mourn someone for a very long time. I mourned my mom's passing for a decade as I watched it and so in some ways when I think about her not being with us anymore I'm happy because I think that you know I'm, I'm not a super religious person but I think in the spiritual world she's who she is and she's with me and you know she loves me and I actually feel more connected to her now that she's passed mm-hmm. than those last few years because those last few years I was a mother to her. I was holding her hand, I was, you know, wiping her butt, you know, that it, it gets, it's a disease that really, it infantiles the person, I don't right. think that's a word, but still, um, it makes them... It ventilizes. It, there we go. Yes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you don't feel the mother-daughter relationship, it, it's juxtaposed, so... I I miss her, but I think I was so sad for so long that there's a a feeling of a lot of relief. And you feel guilt because you feel relieved because you want that person there. But my mom wasn't there, you know, like there were a lot of things that I needed a mom for during those those times in my 20s, you know, job changes, you know, boy stuff just regular life stuff changing apartments and you know moving around and
1: cooking and yeah just like silly stuff stuff. yeah Yeah. just
0: like you know oh we're like sometimes I find myself and not too much but like sometimes I'll find myself really jealous when people are like oh I'll just call my mom and ask her and I'm just like I never you get to call your mom and ask her that (laughs)
1: like
0: come on
1: how do you feel like you are a different person? Obviously, this is mm-hmm. uh, this was a 10-year process, yeah. right? So uh, a person changes on their mm-hmm. own over over the course of 10 years. But if you were to name one way in which you've changed, in what way would you say that you have uh, changed, if at all? Some people, you know, yeah. some people don't.
0: No, I think my perspective def- definitely changed. My wardrobe changed, actually.
1: <laughs> How is um, that?
0: So... When we started the legal proceedings, I was somebody who wore ripped concert t-shirts and jeans every day Uh and, you know, like old Chucks and whatever, you know, like I was I was kind of like a grunge kid still in my like, you know, even in my early 30s, I was doing like that's when we started. And I worked at um, Viacom, which is like MTV, VH1, TV Land. Was so you fit like right in. yeah, so yeah. it was like a place where like you didn't really it's you don't have a corporate look there, and they, that's one of the selling points of working there. And I loved it. Yeah. And then I had to be prepared to. Go into a lawyer's office and defend my mother. And I was like, oh, I have to look like a real adult.
1: (laughs) So suddenly you're like at Ann Taylor Loft.
0: Yeah. I was like, just, I was at like New York and Co. and just finding all these Taylor dresses and ways to look put together as quick as possible. And so now I wear dresses all the time. I'm always overdressed for occasions, I feel like. And that's something that I noticed. Only recently, because someone was like, oh, you, you know, Sue's always so dressed up. And I was like, I am not. Oh, I am now. You got that, that, <laughs>
1: you, you got that lawyer look and you love yes. it.
0: I got this like. I love it. <laughs> I got this because I, I was trying so hard to be clean cut and look like someone who has their life together, sure. that I actually became somebody who is clean cut and has their life together. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, the, the ruse became reality. I love it.
1: I love it. That's a podcast right there. <laughs>
0: yes.
1: Oh my! Fake it till you make it.
0: And then uh, the other thing that I think changed in terms of perspective is we didn't get everything in that legal fight. But... It really taught me that you're not always going to win the big battle but the little battles are worth fighting and you know I really trust my gut it taught me that even if people are like this is ridiculous you're never going to win you fight for it you fight for the people that you love for like love you know I just I fought for my mom and I would fight for any of my family members and friends Mm -hmm. yeah it just really made me realize that You know, in my life, I've had a lot of battles, and I've had a lot of craziness, Mm -hmm. and in a way, it makes life so much better, because I think you have to have really horrible low points to appreciate the good. I think I have a really good perspective on, like, my my sister-in-law recently said, she's like, you're the happiest, most content person I know, (laughs) and... I mean, I live in New York, things drive me crazy, there's a slow walker, the train broke down, yeah, but I'm happy with life because I've gone through these sad moments that were really horrible and I was always tense and now I just realize how precious life is, I'm going to enjoy every minute of it and every moment that's not horrible, I'm going to be happy for. And I think that, you know, the process of going through everything with my mom really made me realize how it's just Better to be present and happy than worry.
1: If you have one piece of advice to give someone who Mm. is new to the caregiving process, what would your advice be?
0: There's so much. I'm like, I've got a thousand things that I'm like, this is what you need to do. But I think probably take care of yourself and remember to put your own oxygen mask on first, you know? And just patience. The whole thing is really tough. So just have patience.
1: Good advice. Sufeng, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to share your story, go to caringkindnyc.org podcast. Maybe we'll use your story on the show. We'd love to hear from you. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave some glowing feedback. We love positive reinforcement. I'm Chris Doucette, and you're listening to Caregiver Storyteller, produced by Caring Kind, the heart of Alzheimer's caregiving.